is the Affirm America podcast, where we stand up and speak out affirming American excellence. Coming to you deep in the heart of the Midwest, located in an undisclosed log cabin on the outskirts of town, your host, Marquis Vandemark. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Affirm America podcast. I am your host, Marquis Vandemark. And yes, I am deep in the heart of the Midwest. In an undisclosed location, in a log cabin, on the outskirts of town. It's a beautiful day in the Midwest. I'm looking outside my window. It is blue skies. Beautiful pre-fall day. It's a crisp Nice football day. Lots of college games on today. The Ohio State Buckeyes are playing today. And we're glad that you're here with us. Thank you all for joining us. We have an excellent program for you today, I believe. We have a guest speaker here today with us. His name is uh, David Eaton. David is um, a good friend of mine. And uh, I think his content today is very important in our discussions about the things that we have been talking about, the radical left and how the, the socialist ideas and wokeism that we see is affecting all different areas of our lives. And one area that it's affecting is in the musical cultural area. And I asked David to come on today to talk to us a little bit about his experience in music and how he sees music's effect on our culture and how the radical left is attacking, especially the classical music. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest today, David Eaton. David uh, has been working as a professional performer, composer, conductor, and arranger since his college days at Ohio State University. In 1976, he began working in New York City, and in 1985, he became the music director of the New York City Symphony and has conducted numerous concerts with the orchestra at venues such as Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, the United Nations, the Apollo Theater, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Manhattan Center. He is currently an artist in residence in Korea, serving as the co-director of music at the Hyojin Cultural Foundation and conductor of the newly formed Hyojin Youth Orchestra. He has appeared as a guest conductor with orchestras in Europe, Canada, Asia, Israel, Russia, Ukraine, and Central and South America. In addition to his conducting career, Mr. Eaton has been a prolific composer, arranger, and producer with 80 original compositions, and over 900 original songs and arrangements to his credit. He is also the author of a soon-to-be-published book, What Music Tells Me, Beauty, Truth, and Goodness in Our Cultural Patrimony. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, Mr. David Eaton. Hey, David. How's it going? Marcus, very good, and thanks for the opportunity to be with you here today. So David's uh, actually speaking to us from South Korea right now, and we're um, talking over Zoom and technology, 
How's things out in Korea, David, today? How's the weather? What's uh, it like? It was, it was a great day. Again, nice fall day. Played a little basketball today and uh, did a recording session yesterday with some children We're working on some children's songs uh, here and uh, uh, been busy with things. And in spite of the COVID issues here, um, we have been able to mount a few concerts here and there and some productions and video productions, recording sessions. Uh, so uh, I have been busy and that's, uh, it's always good to be busy, right? And uh, uh, so um, the, and I, especially the last few weeks, I've been putting the finishing touches on the book that you, you referenced. And uh, we're hoping that uh, it'll be ready for publication within a month or so. Great. Yeah. So um, that's going to be coming out on Amazon. Is that right, David? Well, we hope that's that's our goal. We're I'm working with several people about distribution, and uh, uh, so um, once it's available, I'll, I'll I'll let you know, and then you let your listeners know about it. Yes, but it touches on some of some of these issues that you would already already reference. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, uh, it's it's timely that we could have this conversation, and I'm again grateful for the opportunity. Great. So, David, we were talking before. Let's talk a little bit about um, the uh, the arts and culture, and how it affects our environment around us, especially here in America, and also the history of music and its uh, origins back back during Plato's time and and uh, the beginning of of music. What, how does that uh, affect? our environment and what, what is the moral implications of music and culture, how it affects us, how, it, how we think, how we act, how it affects our young people. Let's talk a little bit about the morality of music and culture. You've been reading my mind here, or maybe reading my book, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I start the book, uh, the preface, with a quote by Leonard Bernstein, the great American conductor and composer. And Bernstein, Lenny, as he was known, said, art cannot change events, but it can change people. It can affect people so they are changed because people are changed by art, enriched, ennobled, encouraged. They can act in a way that may affect the course of events by the way they vote, the way they behave, and the way they think. So that statement in and of, of itself is very much uh, the idea or the premise that I write from in the book. And, and Leonard Bernstein was not a conservative. He was very liberal in his politics. But it points to the, the what I would might call the, the transcendent power of music or, or beauty in general to transcend politics, to transcend race, to transcend the things that, that keep us apart. And that's part of the power of music because be, or, and beauty is because it can bring us together, right? And so I think that's what Bernstein was, was, was alluding to. And I came across a book that really influenced me quite a bit. This is late, late 80s uh, by an author by the name of David Tame, T-A-M-E, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. And the name of the book was called The Secret Power of Music. And what David Tame wrote about well, he examined the ancient cultures of China, Greece, uh, Hebrew culture, Indian culture, 
uh, early Christian culture and found that in all those cultures, of course, music was used for various uh, ritualistic and religious purposes. It also was used in various entertainment modes. But all those cultures had a very similar attitude about music from a, from a moral point of view. And the title of my book references beauty, truth, and goodness. So there's, in, in, in all art, there's the beauty aspect, the aesthetics, right? Mm. There is the truth aspect, which deals with intellect and craft and mm. technique. But then there's this third component, the goodness component. And when we start talking about goodness, we're, we're automatically in the realm of morals and ethics, right? Yes. So what, de what determines what is good and not good? And in, in philosophical terms, that's called axiology, the study of values. So the axiological aspect of music or art is one third of the component. Um, and the Chinese, the Greeks, the early Christians, they all had a lot to say about this because they understood that music, as Leonard Bernstein said, it, it, it affects us, it can enrich us, it can ennoble us, it can encourage us, it can inspire us. So this, this part, this as, the goodness aspect of the beauty, truth, and goodness uh, uh, paradigm, it's an old concept, but all those cultures put a great deal of importance on the ethical aspect, okay? And uh, that's a, a big theme in my book. The, my book isn't, it's a series of essays that I wrote over many decades, going back to the 1980s. Uh, so there isn't a linear pattern in the book where I'm going from part A mm -hmm. to part B to part B, but these are standalone essays, kind of stream of consciousness essays that I had mm -hmm. about certain topics about music and culture and politics and religion and philosophy at given points. But uh, the grand narrative in all of this was the role that art plays in society and the effect of art on our psyche, who we are, and the role of the artists. You know, what is the role of the artist? What responsibility do artists have in the process of creating a culture of, of justice, of fairness, of peace, of harmonization. And so that, that's a big theme in the book. Hmm. So David, what do you think about um, the culture and the arts here in America today in 2021? What's, what, what's, the, what's your viewpoint on how music affects the American culture I'm sure there's good and good music that inspires people, and there's also music that brings us down, I guess, or kind of tears down our morality. What what do you what do you think about the today's uh, cultural influences on our society okay. and our young people? Good question. But I'll go back to the Greeks here a little bit and the Chinese because there's there's an interesting interesting connection. Plato in in his writing The Republic he referenced a person by the name of Damon of Athens. Damon of, of Athens was the son of Damonitis, who was another Greek philosopher. But Damon of Athens was the first Greek philosopher to study the effect of music on our psyche, right? In, in modern terms, we call that psychoacoustics, the, the effect of, of, of sound or music on our 
mindset or our heart set, okay? And in, in the Republic, uh, Plato says that Damon of Athens warns about the following. He said, if you change the songs of a nation, soon you will change the laws of a nation. Mm. And the influence is small at first, but over time it becomes more and more pervasive and pernicious. So these were the Greeks, you know, mm. thousands of years ago. And when I thought of that, I remembered, and you probably remember this, old people like us remember this. Right. The comedian George Carlin. You know, remember George oh, Carlin? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great, great comedian. You know, George was, yeah, funny, but very intellectual. You very. Know, a satirist. He had a comedy routine called The Seven Dirty Words You Can't Say oh, yeah. on Television. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. As a little kid, so I couldn't wait to listen to what the seven dirty words were. <laughs> the point is, there was a time, not so long ago, uh, that if you use those words, you know, on television or radio or maybe in the cinema, uh, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, would come after you. They oh, would yeah. find you. Find you big they time. They might cancel you. Yeah. Now... Those words are everywhere. Mm. They've become normalized. Why? Mm. In the songs of the nation. So, so Damon of Athens long ago said, if you change the songs of a nation, soon you will change the laws of the nation, mm. right? Yeah. So he, he, he was very prescient in that regard. So there has been a normalization of a lot of, of course, behavior, uh, of course, lyrics, words, that have had the effect, in my opinion, of coarsening our society, you know. Sure. Now, in a, free, in a free society, we allow that. We allow the sacred and the profane. Yeah. That's the great thing about our society and why, why advocating for freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of speech is important. We allow for things that we might consider to be you know, uh, irresponsible mm. or untenable to be in the conversation, to be in the music, mm. okay? Mm. But then we have a choice, and individuals have a choice, either to listen to that music or not listen to that right. music, to go to that movie or not go to that movie, whatever, right? Right. So th this, to me, is a, a, a an important consideration. And even the Chinese, too. You know, there's a quote that you, you find on online all the time uh it's usually it's attributed to confucius uh, and the quote is um if if you wish to know if a kingdom is well governed if its leaders are good or bad if its morals are good or bad the quality of its music will furnish the answer hmm. well I, I went i started researching that quote i could not find that quote from confucius but i did find a very similar quote by one of Confucius's, uh, a contemporary of Confucius, a politician by the name of Lu Bu Wei. And he, he wrote this, he said, the will of the people living in an area can be known by examining the customs prevailing there and their virtues can be known by examining their will, whether a state will become prosper, prosperous or face its downfall, whether its leaders are sensible or or unworthy, and whether is a person whether a person is honorable or corrupt can all be known by the music they enjoy. Mm. 
So yeah. again, so again, the Greeks and the Chinese were onto this idea of the moral component of music, and the um, in contemporary flash forward a few thousand years, there's, there's a music historian, musicologist that I read quite a bit by the name of Richard Taruskin, who teaches out at uh, Berkeley uh, University of California, Berkeley. He's considered one of the top, if not the top, musicologist in in the world, if you know. Uh, and he he pointed out and he said this as long as some music somewhere is considered treff, which means not kosher, we have not forgotten that music is a powerful form of persuasion that does work in the world as serious art that possesses ethical force and exacts ethical responsibilities. Now, now Taruskin is not a conservative either. He's a bit of a liberal. But he nonetheless understands that music, art, well, beauty in general, aesthetics, can affect us. So the question is, as creators, and I always say this, as, as, as musicians, as composers or filmmakers or, or, or photographers, whatever we create, we don't create in a vacuum. What we put before the public has consequences. The question is, what are we putting before the public? And what will the consequences be? And do we even take that into account in our creative endeavors? Yeah. The, good, the goodness aspect of the beauty, truth, and goodness paradigm. You bet. And, you know, uh, especially in music nowadays, it's not just uh, audio, audio, right? I mean, now we have, you know, the advent of uh, YouTube, which ha has right. visual sure. uh, influences and also audio. So it's, uh, it's a whole immersion of uh, our senses and I think you know with uh, with you know you were talking about the right to be able to listen to or not listen to particular music because we live in a free society but uh, what do you think about music and how it might affect you know a young person who maybe hasn't you know discerned between what's considered moral music or music that uplifts versus music that influences them to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, influence and, you know, without um, any real understanding of morally upright and what is destructive maybe to their, to their nature and their future. Well, well, let me go back one step. When you, you referenced the video culture, which is huge, as you say, right? visuals are very powerful because they're very direct music is more ephemeral and and uh i make the analogy that sight is more masculine sound is more feminine and our ears are receptive organs like the female mm -hmm. genitalia if you will <laughs> you know sound is more it's 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 vibratory mm. it's it, invisible but it touches the heart whereas visuals is right right in your face right 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 and I, I you may know this person uh brian hargrove uh who's i worked with brian many years he did a lot of uh, recording with me he was a bass player for a long time he was the bass player in uh, public enemy with chuck d and uh he said to me one time he said david the five words that killed the music industry are what does she look like mm. you know it all became about visual and look, right? The look. And uh, 
so the emphasis on visuals is very powerful. And so getting to your next question, what do we, or how do we educate or inculcate certain values to our young people? Well, that's part of uh, what being a family is all about, right? Hmm. That th through, through, through parents acting in responsible ways and the parents take, making decisions that are considered morally upright. And of course that even it, morals these days is, is become very, it's, it's all subjected to relativism, but the family is a key point in all this. And what's interesting to note is it's been the, the assault on family by certain elements, political elements, ideological elements, right? Yes. Um, there's a great book, uh, which I reference. I, I do one chapter in a book called Music and Sex. Mm. Okay, there's one chapter in the book about this. What got me going on this was you know, Sting, the lead singer from The Police. You mm. know, yes. you know, he's, he's, been do he's been doing classical music he learned to play the lute which is the precursor to the modern guitar and he was doing all this english renaissance music but he thought he felt and he says i read this article or it was an interview with him that for him classical music appealed to some higher consciousness you know now now not everyone feels that way but he makes the point that that not all music does that, as he says, some, some music appeals to our lower chakras. I think that's the actual. <laughs> yes, but, yes. But, 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 I take the view that sexuality in and of itself is not, not low. It can be high. Right. It can be virtuous. In the, but it, and, and, and divine, in fact. The in the question, right relationship. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's all about the relationship. So the relationship that we have with our children and in the attempt to inculcate them with certain values about sexuality, about appearance, uh, uh, that, yeah, appearance, I mean, is, is an external uh, attribute. It, 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 it's not an internal aspect. So the relationship between the internal and external or the spiritual and the physical, however you want to characterize it, is very important that, and this is where parents come in. And I was going to reference. There's a great book uh, by Paul Kenger. I don't know if you know called Takedown, mm. and the, and the subtitle of the book I think is something like um, how communists and progressives have worked to sabotage the marriage and family. But there has been an a, an effort going back to Karl Marx to destroy the family. Yes. And, and, and part of the reason, and maybe this gets a little bit now into our woke discussion a little later, but part of the reason was at the heart of, of this view is that religion and family become mitigating factors against hopelessness, against despair, against a lot of the, the problems in life. But the Marxist wanted to use the problems in life as a way to, to gain influence and power. Sure. So marriage, family, God, religion, all of that was an obstacle to their, their desire to create despair and then offer this other alternative, you know, the Marxist alternative. Here is how we can help you with your despair, you know? Right, right. Typical. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, right. It's leftist. Very, yeah. 
Oh yeah, and it, it's divisive it's wedge yeah, issue. That's right. It, it's been around a long time. Yes. And it's not. It's it's not, and it's naive not to think that that has hasn't been going on. Yeah, that's right. Paul Kenger's book is a great book, and one thing he cites in the book, I should just bring this out. President Obama, when he signed legislation, signed the legislation that made same-sex marriage legal, he said that he had recently evolved into that position. But Kanger, in his book, cites David Axelrod, who was President Obama's longtime senior advisor. And Axelrod, in his memoirs, which I think were published in 2011 or 2012, tells the story of how Barack Obama actually believed in same-sex marriage in the, in the 1990s when he was a community organizer in Chicago, but did not go public with his belief because he wanted to curry favor with the black churches in, in Chicago. And if he made his views known about same-sex marriage at that time, he, he, he would, he, his political ambitions would be seriously uh, curtailed. So, so this idea that he, he recently evolved to that position is a lie. Right. Hanger points it out in his book. Right. Typical politician pandering to his uh, base to, to get oh, yeah. votes. Yeah. All politicians yeah. And, do that. And, and, the, yeah, and the pandering is, is, is not endemic to one party. No, no, no way. We know that. No. Yeah, we know that. Yeah. Politicians want to be all things to all people. So whoever gets them uh, their votes then uh, they'll pretty much say whatever they need to. Well, very good, David. So I want to thank you for um, sharing your ideas on culture and music, and uh, we'll make that his book information available to you in my description on this podcast once it becomes available, if you'd like to pick that up. And Okay, so we're going to take just a brief break here just for a moment, and when we come back, I'd like to discuss with uh, David about the wokeness that has now been perpetrated on classical music and white supremacy. So uh, let's talk about that, David, when we come back on a short break here. Okay, welcome back to the Affirm America podcast. Today we're talking with my guest, Mr. David Eaton, about his book, and we're taking a look at how music affects our culture, how it affects our thinking and how we vote and the way we act and the way that we live as a society and how it affects our morality, how it inspires us, and how it also tears us down. And it's important that we understand the motivation behind the arts and culture. And this has been one of David's uh, focuses in uh, the music field as a conductor and as a producer. He's speaking to us from uh, South Korea today. And um, so, David, let's talk a little bit about um, wokeism. You know, this is the some of our topics here on Affirm America is how the radical left has been influencing our schools with critical race theory, with the cancel culture, big tech censorship. And uh, now it seems to be 
attacking classical music and white privilege. So tell us a little bit about what you're seeing here with um, wokeism and classical music and how we see the radical leftists now putting a target on classical music. Well, the first thing I should say that the target has been there going back 30 or 40 years, actually. Back in 1991, I believe, or 92, Camille Paglia, the art historian, who, again, is not a conservative by any stretch. No. She, she strenuously was objecting to the idea that art be assessed by what she called a priori abstractions that had nothing to do with the context in which the art was created. Uh, the idea that we would examine art of 400 years ago according to today's standards. She, she, she said, basically considered that, I think the word she used was garbage, mm. <laughs> you know. And others going back around that time, Edward, Edward Rothstein, who was I think at the time the cultural editor at the New York Times, again, not necessarily conservative. He wrote an essay in uh, the New Republic. This was again, 1991, uh, called Rollover Beethoven, um, the new multiculturalism and its mistakes. Hmm. And this was going on in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the idea that, that Western art should be viewed from this ideological perspective, right? Uh, specifically, the the, the neo-Marxist perspective. And there were musicologists and ethnomusicologists like Deborah Wong and Jeffrey Cooley, as I recall, um, who 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 back in the '90s were seeing the. I think Deborah Wong said it. She said. In, in academia and these studies of music and multiculturalism, Marxism was alive and well, okay? This again, this is in the 1990s. Hmm. So it's not a new phenomenon, you know, it's been around. Sure. And the, the, the so-called long march through the institutions yes. was, was well underway, you know? And after the, the Frankfurt School philosophers um, like Herbert, Marcusa and Theodore Adorno and others came to the United States, they made inroads into academia, of course, the television industry, uh, the music industry. Theodore Adorno, who I, we were talking about a bit earlier, was one of the key players in the Frankfurt School. He was an amateur pianist and composer. And he had a lot to say. He wrote several books on music, and I read them. But he approached music from this neo-Marxist critical theory uh, uh, what might be called PC-oriented multiculturalism. That yes, we have to value all cultures equally, but that Western culture, we don't want to value that at all because it is the cultural residue of colonialism, uh, you know, Christianity, the Judeo-Christian, you know, ethos. Um, so the I, so this 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 zeitgeist. Uh, was, was a, has been around for 30 or 40 years mm. or longer, right? Sure. So what we're seeing now uh, being manifested, especially in the aftermath of, of the George Floyd um, tragedy, is there has been an increased vitriol against the Western classical tradition. And I should call your attention, maybe your listeners' attention, to there were two essays just came out a week or two ago 
which actually prompted me to write a new chapter in my book. That's what I've been working on last week. Uh, Heather McDonald. Oh, yes. And she is senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and she was writing for City Journal. And, of course, she wrote the book, uh, The War on Cops. Yes. And also the book, The Diversity Delusion. Yes, she's and great. And she wrote these two, two provocative essays called Classical Music Suicide Pact. Hmm. Okay. And uh, for those of you who are, are interested in this particular aspect of how neo-Marxism and critical theory is working in art music, those are must-read essays. She cites how educators going back you know, decades, and especially now, again, in the aftermath of the, the um, George Floyd tragedy and the ascent of Black Lives Matter, there's this, this opprobrium directed towards white culture in ways that have, have really become very troubling, right? Mm. But what, what she points out, though, there is, I mean, she points to the, the incongruities of the critics, right. which is easy to spot. Hypocrisy. In, oh, yeah, duplicity, hypocrisy, that on one hand, many of the educators, teachers, faculty of music schools, administrators of orchestras, ballet companies, opera companies, they're under pressure to hire more minority people. Mm-hmm. And they actually want to hire more minority people. But the talent pool isn't that great. Mm-hmm. Isn't that big, right? Not in America anyway. Okay. Yes. Now, and, and, I, and someone asked me while, a little while ago, about this, we were talking. I said, David, do you really do you think classical music is too white, right? Hmm. Like my response was, well, I've conducted maybe ten or twelve different orchestras in South Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan. There are no white people in those orchestras. Mm-hmm. Right. I've conducted orchestras in Central and South America. There are no white people in those orchestras. Right. The most famous youth orchestra program over the last forty years has been in Venezuela. Right. The, the, the Venezuelan Youth Orchestra program, known as El Sistema, is, is world famous. And other nations are trying have adopted their system to help young people uh, learn the classical tradition. And many young people are learning it and are very enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. And these are Latin, and many of them are Latino, mm-hmm. Blacks, mm-hmm. Asians. So there's a lie here that that classical music only appeals to white people. And and, the, and this would be the Adorno view or Michel Foucault and the French Nietzscheans. Well, the reason that they, they were promoting classical music is because it helps them maintain their power structure, the right. status quo, right? Sure. Beethoven wasn't, Beethoven really wasn't a genius. He was just called a genius by those who use Beethoven as an example of quality so it protected their power base mm. right right that's the rationale so so do i think there's that classical music's too white i don't think so but mcdonald points out another situation again another incongruity on one hand educators and, and administrators and uh faculty and college admissions uh administrators want more black people in their program or Latino people or they want diversity, right? Sure. But at the same time, 
the art form itself is being besmirched, derided for being racist, you know, colonialist, oppressive. So why would any self-respecting person of color want to be in an organization that was so racist and reprehensible? You know, yeah. again, it's, it's, points, it's the incongruity again. Sure. Right? It's a typical now, divisive um, yes. wedge issue to just divide yes. people. That's, that's all it's about. It has nothing to do with race. It's just anywhere they can get their, their wedge in there to divide us. You know, it's the old proletariat bourgeoisie communist ideology that's been is now postmodern critical theory is what it is yeah and it, it, that's right and and mcdonald she cites one educator who and, and and another issue that that is in her her writing and i've been talking about this for some time with, with my colleagues in new york uh, some some of my friends high school friends and people i've known for many years play in the metropolitan opera orchestra and other professional orchestras in new york and I've been warning them. I say, you know, if you take this view, you're you're colluding in your own demise, you know. And the one issue that is that comes up is the issue of meritocracy, right? And people may not know this, but for many years, going back decades, when when the top orchestras in America had auditions or a job opening. When they had auditions, they had what were called blind auditions that candidates for the position would play behind a screen mm. for the jury who would assess their, their value. Yeah, no one knew the name, the race, the ethnicity, the gender, the age. It was all about, can this person play the music well? Mm. That was it. And women were told, don't wear high heels to the audition because the, the clicking of the heels on the floor make tip the jury as to your gender. Mm. So there was a real attempt, in a sense, to make it fair, yeah. you know, sure. and just to just to base a person's qualification on their skills and their on their skill set, yep. right? Once that goes away, if it's not about skills anymore, right, and it's about diversity, there could be a drop off in quality. Right? <laughs> yeah, would you think so? I mean, yeah. Well, and if there's a drop off of quality there would be a drop off in audience participation. Who wants to pay big money to hear mediocrity? Absolutely. You know, I think it was either Mark Twain or George Bernard Shaw who said, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, hell is a place where everyone's an amateur musician. <laughs> you know, so, so right. but, but here you have coupled this with what we just saw out in Oregon. The governor of Oregon recently passed legislation to do away with test scores and reading and math, right? Yes. You know, to kind of level the playing field, right? Yes. So whatever happened to No Child Left Behind? Hmm. I mean, right? Yes. And and John McWhorter, I saw an interview with John McWhorter. Uh, if you don't know who McWhorter is, you should find out who he is. He, he's, he's a liberal, but he teaches comparative English and linguistics at Columbia University. He's black. He... he cited that situation on Oregon and, and basically said, well, this kind of attitude that you have that maybe people of color cannot achieve high academic standards is in itself a racist kind of stereotyping. Sure, sure it is. Right? You bet. And he, he, I think he referred to it as kind of the, the, the attitude that people would have in the unreconstructed South 
decades ago that he called the, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Mm. So in her, so I, I thought, well, hey, well, maybe Governor Brown should just give everyone a bachelor's degree from the University of Oregon. Sure, you why know? not? Just just <laughs> pass them out. That'll sure, sure. Hey, everyone's happy. Yeah. But but you know, but again, in music and sports, right? Music and sports; these are two areas where meritocracy matters. Yeah, for we, sure. We pay we pay good money to watch great athletes, you know. And they get paid enormous sums of money, you know, like a LeBron James or, you know, uh, uh, Kevin Durant. Or Brady you know. or somebody, yes. Yeah, they, get, they make big money. And we happily pay that money to see excellence. You know, we're, we're, we're okay with the financial arrangement. And it doesn't bother us so much that LeBron James makes $44 million a year, you know, and I make way less than that, you know. As long there, as he wins. <laughs> but but the point is, there's economic disparity here. Yes. You know? But a lot of people don't object to that. You know, and they're willing to pay good money to go mm. to a basketball game or have a cable TV subscription because they enjoy seeing excellence. Yes. Same way with music. Yes. We, we pay good money to go to a Broadway show or a concert. Yes. You know, because we, the, the experience of excellence, of beauty in art, is is satisfying it satiates us in some way and we 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 pay good money to have that experience right yes and if that is again if sports just became vehicle for equity and we right. should just have equity and forget quality you know right um, and and heather mcdonald makes a point she she cites one uh, administrator or professor at one school who, who says in music in the music conservatories, if if diversity replaces meritocracy, the game is over. And no he question. Said, Mediocrity is like carbon monoxide. You can't see it, you can't smell it, but one but it'll day kill you're it. dead. Yeah. One day you're dead. But I said, but I was I actually sent Heather McDonald an email and I actually made the point. You may not be able to smell it or see it, but in music, you can hear it. Mm. And you're not gonna be so happy. For sure. <laughs> You know, so meritocracy matters yes. in that in that that field. But again, there's this takedown or attempted takedown of that. And by the way, there have been many great Black, African, and Latino performers oh, who love course. classical music. Of course, Leontine Price, Jesse Norman, Kathleen Battle, Denise Graves, uh, the conductor James Dupriest, Michael Morgan, the conductor out in Oakland yeah. who just recently passed away. These people were not bothered by the whiteness of the music. Of course not. Of course and not. And the, the, the principal clarinet player of the New York Philharmonic, Anthony McGill, after the George Floyd uh, episode, he did a video of himself taking two knees and playing his clarinet, uh, and he played Amazing Grace. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. and But then he was asked, well, well, why do you play classical music, you know? He said, oh, I play classical music because it's beautiful. There you go. There you go. It has nothing <laughs> to do with his race. His, uh, That's right. That's right. And his brother his brother is also an accomplished flute player, in, I think, in the Seattle Symphony. Yeah. You know, so there are people out there of, who are not white, especially Asians, who, again, there, there are great orchestras in Japan, China, Vietnam. Yeah. I, I conducted a concert in Vietnam like seven or eight years ago. 
they have a music conservatory there. It's a, and an opera house. It's crazy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your uh, perspective on music and the arts and how it affects our culture, our morality, our principles, and also how absurd the idea that uh, classical music is just a white person's supremacy and that only white people benefit from the classics. So I think um, you're absolutely correct that there is no racial component to who loves music. Music is universal. It goes across all racial, political, religious lines. It's, it's a personal experience. Sure, and, and beauty. I mean, not just music, and beauty. but beauty. Yes. The beauty and no one, very few people object to the beauty of nature. You yeah. Know? You know, it's, uh, it doesn't matter your ideology, your radio, we appreciate beauty. And it's a, it's a basic atavistic human desire to seek beauty. Yes, absolutely. So uh, David's book is um, What Music Tells Me, Beauty, Truth, and Goodness in Our Cultural Patrimony. So again, I'll uh, make a link for that once that's available. So those of you that would like to pick up his book, uh, you can do so. And again, we want to thank David for joining us today on our Firm America podcast. And uh, God bless everybody. Have a great week. And we'll see you on the next episode of Affirm America. This is the Affirm America podcast with your host, Marquis Vandemark. And let's never forget, America is great and we affirm it.